Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, a preview of the Mike Check Poetry Fest taking place in Iowa City this weekend. But first, when Marvel's Black Panther was released in 2018, it featured a cast full of strong black characters, heroes. It was a powerful moment for many people who longed to see themselves and their culture reflected on screen. The movie transported us to Wakanda, an African nation that is untouched by colonization, a hidden African nation that is the most technologically advanced nation on the planet and home to the superhero Black Panther, whose alter ego is King T'Challa, ruler of Wakanda. He was played by Chadwick Boseman, who has since passed away. And here's a moment from the very end of Black Panther when King T'Challa is speaking to the United Nations. My name is King T'Challa, son of King T'Chaka. I am the sovereign ruler of the nation of Wakanda. And for the first time in our history, we will be sharing our knowledge and resources with the outside world. Wakanda will no longer watch from the shadows. We cannot. We must not. We will work to be an example of how we as brothers and sisters on this earth should treat each other. Now more than ever, the illusions of the vision threaten our very existence. We all know the truth. More connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges, while the foolish build barriers. We must find a way to look after one another as if we were one single tribe. The sequel to that film, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, opens today. And in this film, the leaders of Wakanda fight to protect their nation from invading forces in the wake of King T'Challa's death, while a new threat emerges from the hidden undersea nation of Telokan, ruled by Namor, a character that we will talk more about later on, because he brings important new representation to the big screen. The representation in Black Panther has been meaningful to so many, and life-changing to some. And now we're going to talk about why. Teresa Zilk is here. She is many things, including the creator, producer, and curator of Stories to Tell My Daughter Storytelling Events, owner of Teresa Zilk Creative Consulting, and also a proud Black Iowan. Teresa, welcome back to the show. Good morning. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for being here. And this conversation was your idea because uh, Black Panther is a movie that is meaningful to you. And you have observed how incredibly important this has been to so many people that you know and love. Take me back to 2018 when this movie came out. What were your feelings? Oh, I I think I, I like. So many other people that sat in the theater watching it, I was um, I was like in, in complete awe. Um, it was an all black cast. It was centered around these ideas of uh, strong cultural identity. It was centered around the idea of family and community, and um, I think this very powerful. 
um, idea of collective crea- creativity and collective power. And it was it was such a brilliant illustration, um, I thought, of Black excellence, Black brilliance. Um, it, it was just an excellent film all around. And I know I wasn't the only person touched by this. There were so many across the country that were touched by it. There were people in our communities who were touched by it. In my own house, uh, my my youngest son, Christopher, this was like his favorite movie. Uh, Chadwick Boseman was his favorite actor. Um, and the movie just meant a lot to him. And so, of course, um, knowing that there is a sequel being released, uh, it means a lot to me. Were you a fan of superhero movies before you saw Black Panther? So here's the thing. I can't really claim that I was, right? (laughs) (laughs) I can't, but this movie, it really touched me in a way uh, that I never, really that I hadn't been touched before because, I mean, (laughs) I have never seen anything like Black Panther before, not in my lifetime anyway. And I want to dig deeper into what makes this film and this concept so unique. But uh, as we do that, I want to bring on our another guest as well. As Fate is here, a muralist and graffiti artist and educator who lives in Des Moines. As Fate, hello. Peace, peace, peace. How you doing out there? Great. Thank you so much for being back on the show. And let's start with your experience back in 2018. Uh, what were your feelings when this film came out? You know, I think um, the film for me and my family probably had more of a of a of a retrospective uh, effect, uh, meaning that when we first went into watching the movie, um, we were kind of just expecting to see uh, perhaps another good Marvel movie or another good superhero movie. And I actually took my daughter to this movie. She's black as well, of course. Um, she's not into superhero movies. Matter of fact, most movies we take her to, she ends up falling asleep and or I look up and she's already on Instagram. Um, she was actually able to stay attentive through this whole thing. Uh, the theater itself was filled with with black Americans and black Iowans. Um, you could feel the energy, the pride, um, the sense of excellence, as Teresa men- mentioned, that, that was portrayed on screen really seemed to sort of uh, emanate out from the screen into the audience. Um, people were showing up in kente cloths, daishikis, and you know things of this sort. And I think when we when we left the theater and after the fact, and in reflecting on it afterwards, is, is when we really started to recognize the the impact of, for once, seeing uh, a film on such a grand level where the protagonist was was black and of our skin color. And so to transition to that from a black person being the first person to be killed in a horror movie. Uh, was a cool thing. And unlike Teresa, you already were a comic book fan. Like you had you had read the comic books. You went into this and you like the other Marvel Marvel movies. You went into this expecting a superhero movie, right? Indeed. Indeed. And so I, I think some of the the other effects that came from watching the movie that that were layered and had more uh, they had more of an impact that I couldn't foresee. So in other words, I went into the movie already as a comic book fan, already having an idea of how the plot would play out. And so really, I'm just showing up there to see how well does this production work? How do they how do they present this particular rendition of, of Black Panther? 
But when I mentioned those effects regarding the, the pride, the 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 uh, you know causing people to want to go do research on their cultures and their backgrounds after the movie and to learn about the various tribes in the regions of Africa and stuff. All of that I couldn't necessarily foresee. I didn't know I was going to care that much beyond the fact that I just love superhero movies. Well, one of the things that I, I sense makes this film so powerful to black Americans is that it is an alternate, a parallel path to the one that has created the world that we are here in today, because this is a nation that is untouched by colonization. This is an African nation that has remained African and was allowed to develop. The cultures continued without interruption. And of course, this nation developed into this extraordinary place. I mean, Teresa, is that a really important element of why this film is so important? Yeah, um, I think what you're speaking of is is black futurism, right? So um, it is probably, I think, the most one of the most profound things about the movie um, because. Certainly, while it acknowledges the past with its um, its cultural references and spiritual references to ancestral traditions, um, it's you know not to to the present right now, which is important. But the the bow to the future, I think, is really what propels it forward, and it allows you to maybe see a future that you hadn't imagined. Or um, it makes me think of uh, all of the work that that has gone into the different movements that have happened. Black Black Lives Matter um, is actually what comes up for me, and it, it it allows you to see that that work will always be ongoing, but the future the future is ours, and it is what we make it. It is. You know, it's our future of liberation and freedom. It's our future of creativity, and it's our future of of ownership of ourselves. As fate, what do you want to add to that? Uh, I mean, I think Teresa pretty much covered it. I, I would add that you know, history is a, is a revolving door, and and all future ends up becoming a part of history, right? And eventually, it becomes the past. Now, while Teresa mentioned the hope and the optimism that can come from looking to a world that could be. I, I do kind of look at, at the movie as a depiction of what the world already has been and continues to be when you start to draw the parallels between colonialism, um, you know, the, the various forms of colonialism that have, that have occurred in Africa, uh, different nations attempting to come in and sort of exploit natural resources, the sciences, the technology of Wakanda, if you want to draw that parallel. You know, and then when you when you compare the Killmonger, who's almost more of an anti-hero than than a true villain, uh, because of how much you can empathize with a lot of uh, of his positions, when you compare Killmonger and uh, T'Challa, you know, often you hear people draw a common connection between the Malcolm X and Martin comparison, mm. right? Where uh, one person was more about civil dis- disobedience and turning the other cheek. And then the other person who really had the same aim and really supported and loved the same people was more so in a position to say, no, we have to, we're, we're playing by different rules and by any means necessary. So 
on, on one hand, I do see the film as maybe a, a beacon to, to something we could strive to be or, or, or aspire to, to see in our lifetime. But I also see it as a depiction of how the world actually has been. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I am talking with As Fate, a muralist and graffiti artist, an educator who lives in Des Moines, and Teresa Zilk, owner of Teresa Zilk Creative Consulting. We are talking about Black Panther and what this film and what this franchise means to black Iowans and black Americans. We'll continue in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. We have been talking about Marvel's Black Panther films. The second film, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, opens today. And we've been talking about what these films have meant to members of the black community with two members of Iowa's black community. Teresa Zilk is here, owner of Teresa Zilk Creative Consulting and As Fate, a muralist, graffiti artist, MC, and educator who lives in Des Moines. And this new film introduces another Marvel character to the big screen. His name is Namor, and here's a clip from the film when we first meet him. Stop! Right there! Who are you? And how did you get in here? This place is amazing. The air is pristine. And the water. My mother told stories about a place like this. A protected land with people that never have to leave that never have to change who they were. What reason do you have to reveal your secret to the world? I am not a woman who enjoys repeating herself. Who are you? I have many names. My people call me Ahkukunkan. But my enemies call me Namor. Just a uh, moment from the new Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Namor is played by Tena Huerta, and Namor and his kingdom are inspired by Mesoamerican indigenous culture, a connection to the Mayans. And I want to bring another Iowan into the conversation now. Frank Dunyoung is here, Des Moines City Planner, comic book fan, and a proud Chicano Iowan. Hello, Frank. Hi, Charity. Thank thanks. you. Well, yeah. <laughs> thanks for joining us. And uh, now you also, unlike Teresa and more like as fate, you are a big comic book fan. And, and you went into that first Black Panther movie excited. But take me back in time to 2018. What was your impression? Oh, I was stoked. Um, you know, I, I can remember sitting in the theater and just watching it play out, seeing the, the beautiful empire uh, um, present itself uh, to the world. Uh, a clear acknowledgement that you know we we've we've always been here. We we we've had empires that that have come and gone, and and it's it's a beautiful world for us to uh, be inspired by and understand that 
you, you know, we we still provide these treasures to the world, uh, even if it's under a uh, a, a different uh, um, a cloak, so to speak. So uh, Latino characters in um, Marvel, uh, there's there's a history there. There are some exciting new things happening with America Chavez, um, another uh, Marvel series. And, and I know has been a comic book in the past, but I'm sure we'll be seeing a great deal more of her in the near future through the Marvel creations on Disney+. Plus. So, uh, Frank, um, in, in learning about this character, Namor, who has a a history with Marvel, but this film gives him kind of a new identity. Tell me when you learned about how he would be portrayed in this film. Uh, I, I I think I was scrolling, uh, you know, some, some articles on the internet and I came across it and it, I, I was blown back by it. It, it made so much sense to me that they would bring no more uh, in uh, um, as this, as this character uh, that was tied to, uh, you know, this this underwater uh, city, uh, the pyramids, the regalia that they were uh, bringing and showing. It, it, it demonstrated, you know, uh, you know, as being Mexican, you know, we are people here too, and you know, this is our indigenous roots. We are, uh, um, you know, of this nation, of this continent, uh, along with all of our brothers and sisters from the other nations. And honestly, when it comes to Black Panther around the world as well. So does this feel for you like the first time you will see your identity reflected uh, on the big screen in this way? It, you know, it's in, the, in this way, certainly. Unfortunately, in the past, I, I think you've, you've had some of the stereotypical uh, uh, characters uh, of, of Latinos in, in the MCU. This certainly takes that step to really present, you know, we we have a lot to be proud of, and we've uh, contributed immensely, uh, you know, to this country, to to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and and it's it's time for us to take that place, along with uh, our you know our our other native uh, brothers and sisters that that are north of uh, the U.S. Mexico border. Now, I, I can imagine that there are people listening who think, why does it matter to see your identity reflected in the Marvel universe? I mean, uh, I've done many shows in the past about the importance of representation in literature, in film, on television, and, you know, the importance of being able to see yourself reflected back. Frank, you can go first, but I, I want to hear from Teresa and as fate as well. Why do you think it's so important? for people to also see their identities reflected in this fictional universe. Yeah, I, I, I think it comes down to, you know, there, there's a sense of um, our identity has always been uh, almost hidden from us. If not hidden, it certainly isn't uh, uh, talked about in a positive perspective. I, I, could, I could go on about uh, what it means to be... Um, uh, uh, of Mexican ancestry as as taught in the school system. Uh, but when you begin to break that down and, and look at who we are uh, um, truly, you'll understand that our culture is, is, is much richer than that. And to see this character showcase that, showcase the beauty, the strength, the pride, it, it, it's, it just creates a lot of hope for me and inspiration for younger folks as well. As Faye, do you want to respond to that too? 
Yeah, I, you know, I feel, um, you know, life imitates art. And, um, you know, it took forever in this country to, to, to get to a point where we can now consistently and frequently see um, people of color in certain professional positions, be it doctors, physici- physicians, lawyers, scientists, and things like that portrayed in media, um, you know, a president, um, things of that sort. And those things, seeing those things light a candle and youngsters um, in terms of them now aspiring to be a thing, but also thinking they can be a thing, right? So now we understand that it took a long time in history just to see certain forms of professionalism portrayed by people of color. But imagine if you could see yourself potentially being a fireman, potentially being a doctor, potentially being a lawyer, a civil engineer, a city planner like Frank, but you can't be Superman, but you can't be the person that saves the city, but you can't be the person that saves the world, mm-hmm. you know. So it's a whole nother leap and it's a whole nother jump, be it fictional fictional or not, um, for people to be able to see uh, a likeness of themselves portrayed on the screen in, in this fashion. And uh, as fate, I know that you work with young people. You mentioned uh, your daughter enjoying the film, even though she normally mm-hmm. <laughs> isn't into superhero <laughs> films. But you've worked with a lot of young people. And you've also um, done a project in Fort Dodge, a community that you used to live in, painting yes. black superheroes in a mural in, in one of the school facilities there. Tell yes. me about that. Yes, yes. I'd love to tell you about that. Um, so there is a facility known as Athletes uh, for Education and Success. Its uh, director is Chuck Clayton. Shout out to Chuck. Um, it's uh, there in Fort Dodge, and it's basically a facility that's not only for um, uh, Fort Dodge High School attendees, but also those in surrounding areas. They have weight programs. They they um, they work on scholarship, uh, getting scholarships and grants for athletes. They really are working towards finding the balance between being a good st- uh, student and a good athlete. So everything that comes along with it, if it's after school tutoring, if it's a weight program, if it's learning what you should eat and shouldn't eat, if it's being part of the community, if it's basketball games, AAU, it's practice, it's, it's things of that sort, things that help shape people. Well, there was a repurposed elementary school building uh, that's being used for this purpose. And Chuck uh, invited myself and my crewmate, uh, Limbs. We're both part of a, a nationally recognized uh, graffiti crew known as Scarce Elements, also known as the Scarce Collective. And in 2019, um, Chuck invited myself and Limbs to return to Fort Dodge. And his only request was that we paint um, black superheroes throughout the, the hallways of this repurposed school. So as a career vandal, you can imagine this this really was right <laughs> up my alley. Um, a dream come true. Yes, yeah. ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So it was really cool because um, among other black heroes like Mr. Terrific, Honey Bee, some of the lesser known ones, right? We actually did. Uh, we painted uh, Black Panther, painted T'Challa. Um, I painted Shuri as well. And uh, Limbs painted uh, Nick Fury. Samuel L. Samuel L. Jackson Jackson's portrayal of Nick Fury, so that was a really cool project. Um, and and again, you know, once those depictions are up on the wall, you almost feel a different energy as you walk through the place. You feel a different a different power and a sense of pride and that sort of thing. Absolutely, so. absolutely. And uh, I know that the the pandemic uh, gets in the way of a lot of things and the summer off things like that. Did you have you had a chance to see how kids reacted to those paintings? I have. 
haven't. Ugh. You know, I really haven't. I bet they love them so much. Yeah. Uh, Teresa, I mean, do you do you want to add something about the just the power of seeing a a black superhero specifically, not just, I mean, we've, we've talked about the portrayal of Wakanda, this country that, that has, you know, really reached this, this pinnacle of technology and culture, but what is the power of seeing a black superhero? You know, I'm going to put it this way. I think the power of seeing a uh, black superhero is, um, the epitome of the power of storytelling. Um, what uh, I, I guess what the what what Black Panther represents um, and what it does is it allows people to see um, that people of color, that Black people, um, are more than a single story. That there that there that there are nuances and that there are layers. Um, and it certainly leaves behind all the stereotypical portrayals that um, we've seen in the past and we actually continue to see. Um, but movies like Black Panther, um, I think, push the narrative forward and, like I said, allow people to experience um, a more complex and nuanced story and not just a single story um, that only paints black people and brown people in a certain way. You mentioned earlier um, Afrofuturism, which is a a term coined in the 1990s, although it it definitely existed before that. Um, But it's also, I would guess, a, a genre that a lot of white Iowans, a lot of white Americans are probably unfamiliar with, although... You should go back and read some great Octavia Butler books. Take it from me. Um, But this is, I mean, this is a a really powerful genre. And, And Teresa, it feels like it's also gaining power, gaining steam. Why do you think that this is so important? Afrofuturism, which is an opportunity to imagine this alternate future. Because now is the time for, for that to happen. Um, we are look at what's happening. We are living through a, a pandemic. We um, have seen uh, the rise of uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, it's certainly uh, the work of Black Lives Matter um, not only um, work to raise the consciousness of the Black community, but that movement has had a global impact. Um, we have. Uh, deep cultural divides that are happening. So, of course, Afrofuturism um, makes sense. Of course, it is something um, that I don't. I, I don't want to say it's a remedy. I don't want to say that, but I would definitely say that um, since it deals with intersections of culture and 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 all those things that. That is the future. It only makes sense that that people are are really kind of rallying around it. 
we only have a few minutes left. And uh, Frank, I want to talk about um, the indigenous cultures that that are being represented by Namor and his kingdom in this film. And of course, I know you haven't seen it yet. And I know you have to wait several days to see it, which is going to be really tough for you. Um, But but one of the things that we have seen over and over again with uh, Hollywood storytelling and and storytelling in other ways is the cultural appropriation of indigenous cultures, um, patterns, identifiers, languages, taking those things and putting them into stories either featuring white characters or featuring animals or featuring, you know, fictional creatures. We don't see them very often used in, in the way to you know, as they are in the Black Panther movies with the African cultures being used in this fictional African world featuring black actors and what we'll see in Black Panther Wakanda Forever where this these cultural touchstones are being used, I guess, I would say in a culturally appropriate fictional way. I mean, Frank, tell me tell me your thoughts about that. Yeah, um, you know, it's wow. Uh, wow, is is really what comes to to mind? I, I I see the regalia, and there is a huge sense of pride. You know, g- growing up, you know, w- I used to see uh, uh, you know folkloric dance, but you, you know, it really never called to our ancestral roots that were pre-colonial. And so, to see the re- regalia uh, being worn and uh, uh, present itself in, in uh, a strong uh, hero such as Namor. I mean, he, he's, uh, I, I think we're about to learn just how strong he really is. Uh, um, but we're, we're also, you know, there, there is a bond, um, you know, between, you know, the, the black and brown families. And, and I, and I'm very hopeful um, by, by showing the pride that, that comes from both of these families um, that, that there comes a sense of unity. And so to see that regalia to come to life, uh, to see the adornments, uh, it, it instills pride for me. And Frank, you have to wait possibly through the weekend to see the film. As fate, when are you going to see it? <sighs> you don't have firm plans yet? <laughs> I don't have firm plans because I almost want to figure out a way to see it in the theater by myself and no one oh. else there. Yeah, that's going to be tough. Yeah, that may not be <laughs> that may not be the easiest thing, but it'll be soon though. I'm I mean, sure of that. One of my favorite stories from the the first film coming out was that there was a GoFundMe to fund tickets for kids to go see Black Can- Panther and 70,000 mm. children were allowed to to go to the theater for free to see Dang. Black Panther, which is so cool and I hope that gets going again. But Teresa, when are you going to see the film? As soon as I can. Awesome. Well, I, we are out of time, but thank you, all three of you, for being here and, and sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I've been talking to Teresa Zilk. She's the owner of Teresa Zilk Creative Consulting as Fate, muralist, graffiti artist, and educator who lives in Des Moines, and Frank Dunyoung, Des Moines city planner, comic book fan, and proud Chicano Iowan. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. 
Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Last year, a new spoken word poetry festival in Iowa City rose out of the ashes of the pandemic. This year, the second annual Mike Check Poetry Fest will take place on November 11th and 12th. It's a two-day celebration of spoken word poetry and community that will showcase powerhouse performances, workshops, slams, and opportunities for poets of all ages. And because the pandemic is not over, people can attend in person in Iowa City or virtually. You can find out more at iowacitypoetry.com. And right now we're going to meet two of the spoken word superstars who are coming to perform. Patricia Smith is a distinguished professor of English for the City University of New York and a lecturer in creative writing at Princeton University and an award-winning spoken word poet and author of many collections. Smith is a four-time National Poetry Slam champion and was, in fact, the first winner of the individual National Poetry Slam in 1990. Here's an excerpt from her poem, All-Purpose Product, which begins with a list of things Lysol cleaner can be used for. Can I use this to kill mold and mildew? Yes. Lysol controls the growth of mold and mildew. It kills the mold, but removal of the stain associated with mold and mildew can sometimes be tough. Can I use this to scrub the uncontrollable black from the surface of my daughter to make her less Negro and somehow less embarrassing to me? She's like the hour after midnight, that child is. Why, yes. Begin with one Sears Gray Swirl dinette set cheer screeching across the hardwood on spindly steeled legs. Place the offending child on the ruptured plastic of the seat. Demand that she bend her neck to grant you access to the damaged area. You know, of course, that black begins at the back of the neck. Patricia Smith is on the line with me now. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. No problem at all. Very, very happy to be here. Now, you have been a spoken word superstar for a long time, but I am curious, when did you first encounter spoken word poetry and and start participating in slams? Oh, sure. I uh, grew up in Chicago. I'm a Chicago native. And Chicago was pretty ground zero for that kind of poetry performance. And a friend of mine was going to a poetry reading, and it was 50 poets in a blues club over the course of a winter afternoon. And you'll do anything to get out of the winter wind in Chicago. So I said, oh, great. Let's go and drink and make fun of poets. Uh, Actually, that's really what I thought. I thought there would be a lot of people reading about flowers, going through concrete, things like that. Uh, But then when I got there, I realized that there was this really vibrant, literary movement in my city that I knew nothing about. And there was no excuse for that. There were students, there were established poets, they were all coming together. In fact, the um, name of the event was Neutral Turf. And I met someone there who took me uh, to the place where the, the Chicago Slam was happening a few weeks later. And I just got really addicted to that. So what is it about spoken word that moved you so profoundly? It's like a, um, a tunnel of energy from the stage to the audience. And many times someone in the audience would write something really quick and go, well, I want to read now, you know. So it's, it's the conversation they say we should be having, but we don't seem to be having in any other arenas. 
Why do you think that poetry allows us to have that exchange where we, we seem to be unsuccessful at having it in other arenas? Well, I think, too, that there's so many avenues that you can go with poetry. I mean, one of the first things I encountered was a persona poem in, uh, where you step into someone's shoes and you, you speak from their position. So uh, you, can, you can adopt a persona to tell a story. You can kind of hide yourself in a way. And, and then you can kind of reach yourself gradually. And, you know, there were a lot of people write the I know, I, I believe, I see poems. Then you go out and live for a while. And then those poems take on texture. Uh, so it's, it's easier some, in some ways to stand up in front of an audience that it is to sit across a table from someone and talk about something that's important to you. I just think as many ways we can, as we can find our throat, you know, I, I often think of poetry as the second throat and as many throats as we can, can discover, uh, the better we are at telling stories. For you, what's the difference between spoken word and written word poetry? Um, I, I don't, I, I think I came into it a little bit more naturally. It's like I had decided this is something I want to do with my life. Uh, the difference, which I get asked about a lot, is when you're reading, usually when you're doing spoken word, you have one chance. You deliver the poem, the audience does not have a copy of the poem, they can't go home and read the poem again. The language, uh, it just has to go straight in. Uh, it has to be not too complex because you don't want your audience musing on a line and trying to dissect a line while you're still going and that they fall behind, you know? So it, it has to, I can, I can write something for a book that people can sit down and take lots of time with, and you can't do that with spoken words. So just sometimes the, it makes the topics different, but it definitely makes your approach different and more immediate. You are coming to the Mike Check Festival. I, you have such a deep canon of work that I imagine that you have a lot of things that you can select from when you put together a performance. Do you know what you're going to be performing in Iowa? You know, I never know until I get there. I have to meet people, see people, hear what they're buzzing about and go, they'd like to hear and then hear something else and go, no, maybe they'd like to hear this. Sometimes I change when I'm on stage. And so I, I probably will get some sense of, of what people are expecting and then not give them that. <laughs> <laughs> because one of the big things in spoken word is changing, you know, kind of changing the energy in the room. So I think some people think of it as being just really in your face and not bellowing, but, you know, kind of... Uh, combative and confrontational and you must believe you know and you see a little bit of that and you go okay well i'm going to read something from the page now it's going to be really quiet you know uh just to let people know that there is no one spoken word thinking back to when you went to that first spoken word performance and thinking that you weren't going to like what you were going to hear. Um, for people who've never been to a spoken word performance before, what would you tell them before they come? Or maybe what would you tell them to convince them to come? Um, I think that one of the um, one of the goals that the spoken word poet has, or at least that I had, was to disturb the listener, uh, to either get them to think about something that 
they had decided they didn't want to think about, to put them in a position that they never thought they would be in. And and there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can do it with your choice of topic or else you can do it with your language. You know, that's a power that poets have that uh, a lot of people don't think about. I think one of our... Um, one of our goals is really is to get conversations started again uh, and and by bringing the stuff back up to the surface after we think we've hidden it away uh, is, is probably the best thing I think that comes out of, of spoken word. The fact that we can kind of remember that things do happen when you talk to each other and most of those conversations are uncomfortable. Patricia Smith, thank you so much. Sure. No problem. Glad to be with you. Patricia Smith is a distinguished professor of English for the City University of New York and a lecturer in creative writing at Princeton University. Her latest collection, Unshuttered, will be released in February, and she'll be performing and leading workshops at the Mike Check Poetry Festival in Iowa City on Friday and Saturday. There will be many other performers as well, including my next guest, Ebony Stewart. She is an internationally touring poet, writer, and performance artist based in Houston, Texas. She is a Woman of the World Poetry Slam champion and also a coach and mentor. Her latest book collection is Blood Fresh, and we're going to listen to just an excerpt from her poem, Young, Gifted, and Black. My name is a threat, my name is the absence in your amen. And did you forget how the stories go? My name ain't never got a pass, can't. Got too much oil slick, too much scratch, punch, and fight. My name is real confrontational and interested in your comfortable. My name, bite too hard, must have been caged, must have been animalistic once. My name is only necessary after it benefits you. You say, my name ain't right. Well, mama say everything that has a beginning began in me. Say, my name is a blistering queen. Say, my name is a filth and all the light gotta pass through me. My name is a giant, it's rise. Is healing, is learning to remember itself as the Congo, the beaten sound you dance to. My name is the utterance of struggle, meets pride, meets grace, meets visible. Yeah, you see me. Reinventing myself, reclaiming my power. My name is the hero that freed ourselves. My name is newborn Negro and new growth. My name, done trying to figure out why you don't love me. My name is a wealthy affirmation. My name is what blackness done been through and can be. My name say I can't be impossible because I be in existence. Ebony. That is just an excerpt from Young, Gifted, and Black by Ebony Stewart, and she is on the line with me now. Hello, Ebony. Hello. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. And I want to go back in time with you, too. How did you first discover spoken word? Oh, wow. You know, I feel like uh, I'm coming up with like new ways to try to answer this question to be so deep and <laughs> honest, but really, truly, it just, it's the most boring thing maybe ever. I started out journaling um, and my journaling turned into poetry. And then I, I initially thought that, you know, slam poetry was battle rap. I didn't know that they were different. And so my, ch- my style had to like change quite a few times <laughs> over, over the years, but yeah, it really just came from me, you know, journaling. Um, my grandmother handed me a poetry book by Maya Angelou, and it's just history from there. It's who I was made to be. Yeah. So you perform poetry. You also write poetry that ha- that has been published in multiple collections. What is it that you feel you can do on stage performing your poems that you couldn't do in any other way? Mm. 
Um, I, this is such a good question. You're good at this. Like, I really think that I'm a better performer than writer. I'm getting out of that mindset. I feel like when I'm on stage, I'm trying to just control all kind of power within me. <laughs> um, and I have a way about emoting my emotions in such a particular way that it's almost like a skill or a craft. So um, I think hearing me is very different than reading my work. I think you have to hear me first and then know how to add those inflections when you're reading it, probably. So you are a an international touring performer. You also have a lot of other credentials to your name. Um, as you have a master's in social work, and I know from your poetry that you're also a former sex ed teacher. Tell me, is this now a full-time career, or is this something that you do in addition to other things? <laughs> no, this is a full-time career for me. I, I'm, I'm like all the other uh, wild people out there that just want to live their life and do what they love. Um, so, yeah, I do performance poetry as my full-time job since 2015. I'm super blessed to be able to say that and do that. Yeah, that's it. Wow. Do you decide what you're going to perform before you get there? Or is this kind of a, a living, breathing thing that, that you're responding to the audience? Sure. You know, like I always want to be prepared. So I say, if you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready type thing. And I really have way too much anxiety to walk in there. Like, I just know what I'm doing without preparing. Um, but I, I generally have a set list that I, that I'm going to do, or, uh, for instance, on, on Saturday, I'm going to have poems that I, I know for certain that I'm going to perform and I'm going to practice them and really, um, hone in on just that set alone. But there are times when I get into the space and I'm very intentional in paying attention. And it's like, oh, hey, like I should really pull this poem out right now. I think that this audience would be open to it. Um, so I kind of want to prepare for those moments to happen too so that it's going to be an organic re um, experience regardless, but I also want to make sure that I feel confident in what I'm, what I'm presenting. At a festival like this one, of course, you'll have poets who are hungry for these kinds of opportunities because they're they can be few and far between, for example, in a state like Iowa. But you'll also have people in the audience who are really discovering spoken word poetry for the first time. And it can be so incredibly electrifying. I think people are sometimes really shocked by how moving it is. So for people who may not have experienced this live, why why should they seek this out? What do you think that, that you can get out of out of being in that audience? Oh, wow. First, can I just say that I have a little bit of goosebumps happening? I love the word electric, and you described that experience so beautifully. Thank you so much. It, I mean, it really is a community experience that we're exchanging with each other. And I think being in the audience and witnessing something that you've never experienced before is just alone, its own power and its own beauty. Um, and I think I'm just as excited to hear people that I've never heard before, right? Like, like if you are a person that likes surprises and someone surprises you and they do really, really well, <laughs> it's a wonderful experience. It's like, oh my gosh, I could have never imagined that. And this is something even better than what I didn't even know before, right? Um, and I, I feel so seen and wow, that was so relatable. And, 
you know, a, a treat almost. Yeah. Right. And then, and then, and then if you have something that if you're a person that doesn't like surprises and it doesn't go well, I just want to leave room to say, like, you're still going to have an experience that you never had before, so you should probably still come, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so that, like, there, there's a part of it that's kind of um, allowing us to just take risk and be present in this moment of something I've never experienced before, but I'm curious, and how else will I know unless I, you know. Yeah. And if it broadens it. your mind and helps you experience empathy in a new way and teaches you something that's... That's all icing on the cake, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, there's some times where, like, I see commercials and be like, wow, that was like such a moving commercial. What is happening? Right? And whoever was in the room that created that commercial doesn't get to see that everyone is having that moment. But I think with with poetry and live performance in, in this regard of how artistry works, you get to see an archivist at work, you know, and that's, um, that's really huge. Ebony, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Ebony Stewart, she is an internationally touring poet, writer, and performance artist based in Houston, Texas. She will be performing and running workshops at the Mike Check Poetry Festival in Iowa City on Friday and Saturday, and you can find out more at Iowa City Poetry. Dot com. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.